you have preserved for us. Uh, thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me to Second Timothy, if you would, this morning. We're continuing our study of the pastoral epistles. If you remember from last week, the pastoral epistles make up three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And I'll kind of review a little bit of what I said last week. The pastoral epistles are unique for a couple of reasons. The first is that a lot of Paul's letters are addressed to churches, but these pastoral epistles are actually addressed to individuals. There's a bit of a personal tone about these letters, which I think is pretty interesting. Timothy and Titus had both previously ministered with Paul as he kind of traveled around on his missionaries and did his own ministry. And now, uh, well, while they were doing that with Paul, they were kind of like his representatives or, I don't know, maybe ambassadors, you would say. Paul would send them on little errands to check in on churches and report news back to him. But now Timothy and Titus have a much more increased responsibility. They've each been tasked to essentially pastor a local church, Titus on the island of Crete and Timothy in Ephesus. And so Paul started each of these churches likely, and now as he hands the baton off to them, he writes these letters as a sort of uh, manual or instructions for what these men need to do in the churches that they now oversee. Some of these instructions are kind of general Uh, He says things like, hey, here's how you should appoint leaders. Here's how you take care of widows. Uh, And then some of his instructions are actually pretty specific and personal. If you remember last week in 1 Timothy, Paul encouraged Timothy, hey, you're young. Don't let anyone look down or despise you because you're a young person. Set an example among the believers in your speech, in your love, in your conduct, in faith, and purity. Don't give them a reason to look down on you, but be an example, someone that they can follow even as a young person. I think that's great advice for a younger man. Hey, go to Ephesus. Don't be like everybody else. Be an example here, even though you're young. So that's one of the reasons the pastoral epistles are unique. The second reason that I find them to be really interesting is that they are likely the last letters that Paul wrote before he was martyred. Church history tells us that Paul was beheaded in Rome under the reign of the emperor Nero. And there are actually some clues even here in 2 Timothy that kind of prepare us for Paul's death. It certainly seems that Paul knows that his life is coming to an end. And I wanted to point out some of these things for you. In chapter 1, Paul says that he is a prisoner in Rome. In chapter 2, you might want to look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Paul says that he is suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. This in and of itself is not a new experience for Paul. He suffered for the gospel before. We can see the list of things in 2 Corinthians 11 that he endured for the sake of Christ, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, the beatings, all these things. But there's something kind of different about this imprisonment here. It seems that Paul's life is coming to an end, and he knows that. And I just want to demonstrate, demonstrate that to you by chapter 4, some of the verses we encounter in chapter 4. So turn over there, chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. 
we read this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Jump down to verse 18. Paul makes this bold declaration that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what I mean when I say that Paul seems to know that his life is coming to an end here? He's preparing for it. He says, the time of my departure has come. And so one of the ways that we might look at 2 Timothy is to look at these as kind of like Paul's last words. There's a certain sobriety to someone's last words. You don't expect them to say things that are frivolous, unimportant, This is serious. Here is the Apostle Paul, that great defender of the faith, author of large chunks of scripture, faithful follower of Jesus, disciple maker, preaching the true gospel of faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And here he is at the end of his life writing some final instructions to the next generation of people that are going to pick up the mantle and continue what he has started. And I hope that as we hear that these are Paul's last words, that we kind of lean forward in our seats a little bit and we think to ourselves, what does this godly older man have to teach me about how to live my life? Here is someone that we would do well to emulate his faith, his service to Jesus, and he's going to tell us some things that are important for our practice of the faith. And I hope that that incites within us a desire to say, what's life all about? What should I be living for, Paul? Teach me. What wisdom can you pass on to me so that we can get to the end of our life and echo with you? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I hope that that's all of our desire to come to the end of our life and be able to say something like that. We'll actually talk about this at the end, we'll, we'll move into the questions and save some time for a discussion on that. But back to chapter one, if you will. One of the things we like to do when studying a new book of the Bible is to try and discern the occasion or the purpose of this letter, answer the question, Paul, why did you write not just one, but two books to Timothy. I think if you have your sheet in front of you there, maybe some of the key words will help you understand why Paul wrote the second book here. Maybe you see a little bit of a common theme. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy because he is warning him to expect persecution, expect suffering. Timothy, know that this is coming. Commentators think that as Paul writes the second letter to Timothy, there is a heightened persecution that is happening particularly in Rome at this time. There was, as I'm sure you've heard, this great fire that took out a large chunk of Rome, and Nero, looking for someone to blame and get the attention off of himself, 
directed that towards Christians. And all of a sudden, there is this concentrated effort to persecute Christians. Nero puts these Christians to death in these gruesome ways, and this is kind of localized to Rome, and Paul is a prisoner in Rome, but he's telling Timothy in Ephesus, hey, persecution's coming your way too. Prepare for this. I'm sure the reality of that was not lost on Timothy as he receives a letter from someone in prison who's being persecuted for his faith. He knows that this is all too real. So Paul encourages Timothy in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy, you have all these things at your disposal. Fan into flame the gift of God in preparation for what is coming. Be a bold witness in the face of persecution. And we actually encounter this word ashamed a handful of times just in chapter 1. And I wanted to take these one at a time, verse 8, 12, and 16, and just talk to, through what Paul is trying to say to Timothy about not being ashamed. So according to verse 8, what is Paul communicating to Timothy here? Brenda. Yeah, there's one other component component that he should not be ashamed of. Do you know, Diane? Sorry, you raise your hand. Not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or... Okay. I think Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or me, his prisoner. There's kind of this twofold aspect of uh, shame that could happen. We understand what it would be to be ashamed of the gospel. I think all of us have experienced maybe some... Uh, you know, weird looks that we get when we say we're followers of Jesus. Someone scoffs at us, our rolls are at their eyes. You believe in Jesus, really? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Greeks think the gospel is foolishness. The Jews think it is a stumbling block. This uh, ridicule that people have been experiencing for the gospel dates back to the early church, to the book of Acts. People have always hated this message of the gospel. What might not be obvious to us is why Timothy would have occasion to be ashamed of Paul. I'll do my best to try and explain this here for you. Paul was in prison in Rome. He invites Timothy a handful of times to come visit him and warns him, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. For you and I, in modern-day America, visiting someone in prison wouldn't really come at any cost to ourselves. In fact, that might be considered a kind of nice thing to do. If you have a friend or a loved one in prison, there's a pretty straightforward way you can go and visit them. However, in Bible times, visiting someone in prison, uh, there was a higher stakes associated with this. Uh, we generally expect that our prisons are at least meeting the basic necessities of prisoners, food, clothing, shelter, this wasn't necessarily the case in Bible times. In fact, it seems, uh, from what I understand, that a lot of prisoners were dependent on outsiders, even for food. Paul says in 2 Timothy, hey, bring my cloak when you come. Maybe Paul was cold and needed, needed some warmth. Think about this for just a second here. If Paul is in prison for his faith, and Timothy is coming regularly to his cell, what's a guard going to think about Timothy? the same as Paul. This guy shares the same faith 
as Paul, what's keeping me from locking him up? Right? So I think we can understand that there's an association even there that Timothy might have had cause to be uneasy about. You're asking me, Paul, to come and visit you, but you know that associates me with you. Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Coming now to verse 12. What point does Paul make in verse 12 about not being ashamed? Timmy. Yeah, Paul says that maybe in contrast to Timothy, he is not ashamed of the gospel. Just prior to verse 12, Paul rehearses the gospel that he is suffering for, the gospel of salvation and faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And Paul concludes, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I know whom I have believed. Paul makes a similar statement in Romans chapter 1 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Paul says, listen, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know that it is the only way that people can attain the righteousness of God. It is the only way. It's the power of God for salvation. Other people are trying all these things that don't work. Only Jesus saves. And I'm not ashamed of proclaiming that. I do want to come back to verse 12 in the application section, so we'll leave that part pretty brief. But what does Paul say in verse 16 about not being ashamed? There's something really interesting that happens here. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, Paul actually mentions this guy, uh, Onesiphorus, who came to Paul often and was not ashamed of his chains. So here was a guy who came to Rome found Paul, ministered to him regularly, was not ashamed of that association that I just described a couple of minutes ago, and said, you know what? My love for Paul and my desire to refresh him and take care of him outweighs any risk to myself. So what Paul seems to be doing here is he tells Timothy at the beginning, don't be ashamed of me, don't be ashamed of the gospel, and he begins to list illustrations of other people who aren't ashamed of Paul, who aren't ashamed of the gospel. And I think it's just providing a model or an example to a younger man, listen, Other people are doing this too, Timothy. You can. Be strong in the faith. Be bold. Use what God has given you to your advantage. And as I was just thinking about this, I thought, you know, how often do we think in the Christian life that we're kind of doing things all by ourselves? And how encouraging would it be to see the example of other people, older saints, and realize that, you know what, they get up every day in the morning and choose to die to themselves and follow Jesus. What an example to younger people to be able to look to that example of older folks and say, yeah, I can do this too. I can follow Jesus well. We come now to the application section, and I wanted us to read verse 12 again because I just thought it was awesome. Paul's a prisoner, and he says this, kind of picking up right in the middle of verse 12. He says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So according to verse 12, what is the basis for Paul's boldness here? His faith. Yeah, particularly his knowledge of God. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. Paul is absolutely convinced that God is real, that his word is true, 
that his sins are forgiven, that the message that he has been proclaiming is the truth. And I want to ask you this. If you're only half convinced that something is true, are you going to put your life on the line for it? If you're not really sure that God is who he says he is, that his word is authoritative, when the rubber meets the road, are you going to go to prison for something like that? Probably not. You'll preserve your own flesh. But here Paul is. He is willing and able to suffer because there is no doubt in his mind that the God whom he has been proclaiming is real. And he has entrusted himself to his care. So it led me to ask this question that is rhetorical. You don't need to answer. But do you know God like this? Is your faith in God so grounded that any circumstance or trial could come your way and you say, I'm good. I can endure because I know the God behind all these things. I I was just reflecting on Paul's attitude here, his demeanor in the midst of these hardships, and I thought to myself, man, if we possessed this kind of faith, we could do anything. How often are we hindered by our doubts? How often do we weigh out the pros and cons of following Jesus in our minds and think, well, I don't know. If we truly trusted God like this, we'd have so much boldness. We'd be concentrated on serving God with all of our being. We would say, I know who he is. I know what awaits me. I know what mission he's assigned to me. I'm doing it. I'm jumping in head first. I'm not going to straddle the fence and think about, you know, how my life and what God is doing for me, you know, how they can maybe intersect at some point. No, I'm all in for God. I know whom I have believed so that when people mock us for following Jesus, we say, okay, that's fine. I know the truth. When people threaten us, We say, well, this is uncomfortable, but you're not changing my mind on this. Worst case scenario, someone threatens to take our life even. And in a high-pressure situation like that, we could say, I know God. You're just accelerating maybe my entrance into his presence here. No big deal. I know whom I have believed. Undoubtedly, Paul had many things in his life that helped to increase his knowledge of God and to strengthen his faith. I think, you know, if we think about it, we could envy Paul a little bit and some of the experiences he had. Jesus appeared to him personally. Paul says that he went to heaven. He had experiences, I'm sure, that helped to strengthen his faith. But we're not without some of these experiences ourselves. We know that God is real from personal experience. And I just asked you, Again, we don't have to talk about these, but what events from your own life have helped to increase your faith in God? I'll speak for myself here. Sometimes I get like so locked in to like the day-to-day of my life that I just forget that God has been placing me on this trajectory in my life and provided for me in so many ways that should be so evident to myself, and yet I still doubt him. Because in the thick of my daily responsibilities, I forget. Let me encourage you, 
to remember what God has done, how he's revealed himself to you, the miraculous ways which he has provided for you financially, physically, and to say, I know God is real. What am I doing doubting this? I've seen it in my own life. We come now to chapter 2, and this is kind of a continuation of some of the things that Paul has been telling Timothy. Paul uses three illustrations to kind of illustrate how a Christian should be living. We'll just kind of rattle these off really quickly here. In verse 4, what illustration does Paul make use of? A soldier. How about in verse 5? An athlete. And then in verse 6, a farmer. Yeah, so... Paul then has some instructions to Timothy in verse 7. He says, hey, think about what I just said. The Christian life is like being a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. He gives some little details that might help us discern what he means exactly by this. Let me ask you, what are some of the lessons that you think Paul is trying to illustrate to Timothy through these illustrations? What, you, what might you conclude about the Christian life? Yeah, Julia. Yeah, our aim should be to please God and not people. Taken from the soldier. A soldier doesn't get involved in civilian disputes. He's concerned about pleasing his master. Great answer. Yeah, L- let me just elaborate on that just a little bit further. I- imagine that you, there is a group of soldiers who've been tasked with uh, clearing a street or a row of houses. This is a critical task, right? They, there could be enemies hidden in alleyways or buildings or wherever, and you and a group of people have been tasked to just drive them out of the city so that they don't sneak behind you, so that they're not able to form some sort of stronghold. And as you are in the process of doing this, you see a cafe that's open. And you think, huh, a cappuccino and a pastry sounds pretty nice. <laughs> hey guys, I'm going to go check that out, catch up with you in an hour. I also would like to see how this game ends that's on TV here. What do you conclude about a soldier who does that? They're not serious. Yeah, clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. If he allowed the things of the world to distract him from his original, you know, message or whatever. Yeah. What, What does that say about his respect for his commanding officer? doesn't care, doesn't respect him. Yeah, so in turn, what does it say about us, Christians, who are in a spiritual battle? And maybe we disregard some of Jesus' instructions. We start to chill in life. When we're in a war zone, we have a mission. What does it say about our love for Jesus when he gives us commands and we say, "Eh, I could take it or leave it. The Christian life, as Julia was saying, has to be one aim. We serve one commander. You follow him. We don't get distracted by civilian or trivial pursuits. Yeah, any other takeaways from maybe the athlete or the farmer? Uh, Craig. A football player, if he's committing a lot of penalties, is going to be to the detriment of his team. He has to play according to the rules to help his team to win the game. So we as Christians need to obey God's precepts and commands um, to be effective witnesses for him. Exactly, yeah. You, I, 
You said it very well. The Christian life is not one that is just lawlessness, that uh, I'll do this however I want. Thank you, Jesus, for heaven. I'm going to keep doing however I want to. No, they're, just like there are rules in sports, so too there are guidelines and expectations for believers in the Christian life. Yeah, any takeaways from, yeah, John. Because if we work hard, because it is work yep. to walk with Jesus, we need to be in his word, we need to put ourselves in front and let the spirit work on us. We get to share in the results of that as God's blessing in our life and leading in our life that we would not have if we didn't if we weren't born again. We didn't have the Holy Spirit on us. Yeah, so I think some of the uh, general principles that we would take away from these applications are hardworking disciplined, single-minded. These are the characteristics that should define the Christian life. We should look different than everybody else because we're following Jesus. We read chapter 2 twice this week, so some of our questions come from the end of the chapter, but before we get to the next set, I wanted to point out to you uh, verses 8 and 9 in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Here Paul is feeling stuck, very literally, in prison. Paul is bound. But the good news is that Christianity does not rise and fall on the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Paul's death doesn't mean that, okay, this movement's over. No, Paul says the word of God is not bound. It is the true power here. Certainly Paul is a messenger of it, but it exceeds the walls of his cell and just goes throughout the world and changes people. The word of God is a a, a pretty big theme here in 2 Timothy. We'll encounter it again in more of our questions, but we come to chapter, the second part of chapter 2, and there's an illustration that Paul makes use of in verses 20 and 21. Anyone want to describe very quickly what illustration he uh, uses here? All right, Paul's talking about a house, these vessels, utensils, furniture, maybe you'd say, that has these, uh, you know, honorable and dishonorable uses. Some of the vessels are made of precious metals. Some are made of worthless materials. And what things are true of the vessel for honorable use in verse 21? There's a description of these things. Lisa. Yeah, yeah, and we're told, just like in that verse or the next one, that it is possible, obviously we're not talking about a house anymore, it's becoming apparent to us that this is an illustration, and it is possible to move from the category of dishonorable to honorable by this list that follows it. I kind of answered the first question here, sorry about that. The list in verses 22 to 26 are related to this illustration because it is the means by which a person purifies himself, becomes useful to the Lord. And so I asked you, again, you don't need to tell me this, but which of these attributes perhaps needed the most attention or improvement in your own life? Rhetorical. But I will point out to you verse 23, 
Paul says this to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Look back at verse 16. Paul says this, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Paul mentioned uh, the tongue to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Obviously, his words, what he is saying, what he is engaging in discussion is a big deal to Paul. Timothy, watch your tongue. James tells us your tongue can start the equivalent of a forest fire. And as a person who wants to be used by the Lord, one of the simple things we can do is just watch what we say. Watch the discussions that we're engaging in. Are we just talking about stuff that has no value in life? Just shooting the breeze? Or are we really taking care to edify people? To talk when we do about godly things that are concrete, that encourage one another, strengthen their faith, make them more like Christ. Chapter 3, Paul tells tells Timothy to expect certain things to be true in the last days. And I do want to just make a clarifying comment here. A lot of times we hear or think about the last days as the, like, I don't know, weeks, months, perhaps years that would come immediately before the return of Christ. However, a lot of commentators think that last days in this usage here really is any time after the ascension of Jesus Christ. So in the same sense that Timothy was living in the last days, so too are we. So we'll go forward with that understanding of last days as we answer the following questions here. But what does Paul tell Timothy to expect during this time period? Yeah, Brenda. Perilous times. I think the ESV says times of difficulty. And I don't know what you think when you hear times of difficulty. Uh, Maybe just some crazy like revelation type stuff. But that's not what Paul describes. As you read verses 2 to 9, how would you summarize the difficulties that Timothy is going to encounter? Feel free to scan those verses if you didn't answer the question earlier this week. But what's Paul describing here, Lisa? A time of godlessness where everything is man-centered living. Yeah, Uh, just like a a downward spiral of human behavior. Godlessness, I think, is a great word for it. Perhaps this list here was reminiscent of a list we encountered in Romans chapter 1, when we're told God gives people over to, uh, I forget exactly what he says, but yeah, a reprobate mind. Yeah, this list looks very similar. Paul's telling Timothy, listen, this world isn't getting better and better. People aren't somehow magically becoming nicer and more Christ-like. No, in fact, people are going to just spiral out of control here. There was kind of a, some noteworthy things on the list um, would be maybe the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. There are people who certainly talk a big game in these last days, but they don't believe God. When you look at the fruit of their life, there's nothing real there. In verse 8, we encounter these two guys named uh, Jans and Jambres. Did anyone do a little bit more research as to who they might have been? That was kind of interesting. Anyone? No? Yeah, John. I found a note in the ESV study Bible that said that um, these evidently were the magicians in Pharaoh's court that Moses confronted. (laughs) Yeah, they were the magicians that Moses confronted. Again, this is kind of extra biblical literature at play here, but Paul says, hey, you know, these guys opposed Moses when Aaron threw his staff down. The magicians did the same thing when Aaron held his staff over the Nile River and it turned to blood. The magicians were able to replicate these things. But the point is clear that you can talk a big game for only so long, but eventually 
your folly is going to be revealed. It's going to be found out. You actually have no power. Paul tells Timothy, expect this, godlessness. And what is his instruction to Timothy regarding those people at the end of verse 5? Just a simple instruction here. What does he say? Timmy? Oh, Timmy. Yeah, avoid these people. I really appreciate Paul's instruction. Paul isn't saying go lock yourself in a cave and never talk to anybody. But he is just afraid that perhaps Timothy is getting a little too chummy with these people. We need to put some distance between ourselves and ungodly, immoral people so that they do not rub off on us and influence us and tarnish our testimony for Christ and perhaps limit what we're able to do for him. As we come to the apply section then, Paul prepares Timothy for a reality that maybe is a little off-putting. What reality does Paul prepare us for in verse 12? Diane. Yeah, look at verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And thus far in the book, we're pretty cognizant of the fact that Paul is uh, helping Timothy to understand that he as an individual could be persecuted. But now the scope of this book broadens to say, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so what is your initial response to reading that? Lisa. Lord, help me to be faithful. Yeah. Lord, help me to be faithful. Any other thoughts? John. Expect it. Expect it. Yeah, don't be surprised. (gasps) I'm suffering persecution. No, expect it. If I could be honest, I wrote down a little bit of hesitancy. We're all pretty averse to pain, discomfort. Hearing that we'll be persecuted is like, okay. Yeah, Hutch. I trust daily and follow me, and it's not going to be an easy trip. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want you to notice in the text, though, there is a qualifier here. Theoretically, there would be a way to escape persecution. How would one do that? Yeah. To not live a godly life. Is that an option for followers of Jesus? No. We're going to encounter this in our study of 1 John. But John says, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but don't keep his commandments... What's true of you? You're a liar. The truth isn't in you. So, there is no such thing as a genuine Christian who isn't concerned about godliness. To put it positively, every follower of Jesus, every true follower of Jesus, is concerned about obeying his commands and being godly and distinct and not like the world. According to verses 14 and 17, what helps us endure this persecution and deception? Maybe I could rephrase that question just a little bit. When we're striving to live a godly life in the midst of persecution, while other people are running around being deceived, what is our foundation? The word of God. 
the scriptures, Paul reminds Timothy that the scriptures are not some human invention here. This is something with divine origin. It is God breathed. And as such, it is profitable for you, Timothy, for all sorts of things to rebuke, to corrupt, to train you in how to be righteous. So when everything else is descending into chaos, Timothy, you stand on the foundation of God's word. And I just wanted to ask you a simple question. Are you convinced this morning that what you're holding in your lap really is the word of God? That God spoke this? That it is authoritative to our lives? Sometimes I think we forget this basic truth. We become so familiar with the stories. We know a lot of the big stories in the Bible. We know a lot of the themes. And we become too familiar with it. And I think that we need to approach every time we open this book with a spirit of awe and reverence that the eternal creator God of the universe would reveal himself to me in this book. We need to have a spirit of humility that says, Lord, whatever you're going to teach me, I'll do. I'll change. I'll conform my life to it. Yeah, how about Matthew 5, 11? I should have included verse 12. That was oversight on my part. But what would be a biblical response to persecution in light of these verses here? Tell me. You're blessed. Yeah, verse 12 says, when you're persecuted, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And you are sharing something in common with the prophets who went before you because they too were persecuted for this. Uh, Furthermore, we should count it an honor to be persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, uh, I forget which chapter, Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are preaching about Jesus. They're persecuted for it. I think sent into prison, maybe beaten, and after all this happens, it says they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. When we consider the dishonor, the shame that Jesus himself bore for us, it should be a privilege to have a little part in that. To say, Lord, I know what you endured for me. How awesome is it that I get to endure some of this as well and walk in your footsteps It should be an honor to share in the suffering of Christ. To borrow some language from 1 Peter chapter 4. Finally, we come to 2 Timothy 4. I won't ask you, I'll just kind of rattle through these really quickly. There's a danger Paul anticipates that people are going to look for teaching that is not sound. They're just going to want to have their ears tickled. And I asked you, do you think this is happening today? Totally. Yeah, you can find sermons on the internet and pastors who are very soft. They take easy positions on sin. They're unwilling to be as clear as the Bible is about some of these things. And knowing that this is coming, Paul has an instruction for Timothy. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Timothy, this has to be your foundation in life. When we come to the apply section, Paul rebukes Timothy, or excuse me, Paul rebukes Demas, for forsaking him, being in love with the world. First John says that a person who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. And I just hope that as you were thinking about some of the indicators of someone who loves the world, that that was thought-provoking. Do you love the world? I'm working quickly through these because I wanted to come back to Paul's conclusory statement that he makes at the end of 2 Timothy. When he gets to the end of his life and he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. 
And I just want to take a second here to ponder these words and ask ourselves, are we going to be able to get to the end of our life and echo the statement? None of us wants to sit on our deathbed and think, I wasted a good chunk of my life. God gave me so much, and I squandered it. I spent this whole life on myself and made little impact in eternity. And sometimes we think to ourselves that we'll get serious about living for Jesus just a little bit later. And while well-intended, I think we have this mindset that every single one of us here is going to be that person who lives till they're 100, lives a long, full life, dies peacefully in their sleep. And yet the reality is, is that none of us know when we're going to die. So if we continue to defer following Jesus till we're just a little bit older, we're going to be caught off guard. We're not going to be ready for it. We literally have no idea if this could be our last day on earth. So the question is, how do we get to a place in life where we could say, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, I fought the good fight. I'm sure that you're even hearing me say this, you're seeing the words on the screen, and you think, yeah. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want this to be true of me. But the reality is that tomorrow morning, all of us are going to get back up and just fall back into our daily routine. We all have to go to work. We all have chores that need to be done. Laundry and cleaning and just errands. So how do I be this good soldier of Jesus Christ at the end of the day after doing all of my responsibilities? And I think even asking that question assumes that those two things are separate. Following Jesus is part of doing our daily responsibilities. Remember what uh, we're told in Colossians that our work can even be done for Christ? So when you work, work for your true master, Jesus Christ. Think about how you can use the funds you make from your job to serve him. Think about how you can be kind to your annoying coworker. Think about how you can do things that are ethical in the workplace when everyone else is doing unethical things. Live for Jesus in the daily decisions of life. Make it your aim, I think Julia pointed out, to please Jesus today, to do little things to follow him so that you can echo these words with the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would just instill within us a greater sense of our own mortality that you could return at any second, that we could die at any moment, and to live then in light of that, to put aside some of these civilian pursuits that we've been pursuing, and to follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, please change our hearts. We get easily distracted. We need our focus to be on you. Give us the grace to be able to do that, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.